Courtney. Good evening, Leland. Evening, Shannon, to you. And we're learning a lot more about that operation from the beginning to the end that resulted in the death of Qasem Soleimani. It went far beyond a drone strike and included U.S. Army Special Operations soldiers on the ground that actually followed his convoy. Half a mile behind when the missile from the Reaper drone hit, they were on the scene within a minute or two. Immediately following the drone strike, they did what in the business is called a bomb damage assessment and took pictures of the scene, along with confirming that the drone got the right car and Soleimani was dead. Many of the pictures we have obtained include graphic and close-up pictures of the Iranian general's body. We're not going to show you those tonight. They're simply too gruesome. He is missing limbs and is grossly disfigured. A source who both served in Iraq and saw the pictures noted that Soleimani died in much the same way the Americans he killed died. Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the world's most wanted and brutal terrorist, dead after a daring raid by the elite U.S. to force. He was the founder and leader of ISIS, the most ruthless and violent terror organization anywhere in the world. 5 p.m. Saturday night, President Trump, flanked by Vice President Pence, National Security Advisor O'Brien, and Defense Secretary Esper, gathering in the Situation Room with military brass, including the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, all watching a live, step-by-step -step feed of the mission. Eight Chinook helicopters took off on the secret mission from a Kurdish-controlled area in Iraq, flying low and taking on gunfire before landing in northern Syria. Baghdadi fled into an underground tunnel with three children. The president today speaking of the mission in stark detail. He died after running into a dead-end tunnel whimpering and crying and screaming all the way. But before the special operations team could get to him, Baghdadi detonated a suicide vest he was wearing. The three children killed alongside him. His body was mutilated by the blast. The tunnel had caved in on it in addition. Force was on the ground for roughly two hours in a firefight with Baghdadi's men, killing two of his wives who were also wearing suicide vests, although they did not detonate. At 7.15 p.m., the call came into the Situation Room from those on the ground saying 100% confirmation, jackpot, over. We took highly sensitive material and information from the raid, much having to do with ISIS origins, future plans, things that we very much want. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have a special episode for you guys today. My guest is Dan Ibeck. Dan served for 21 years in the Army, uh, a couple years at the Ranger Regiment, and then over a decade at the Special Missions Unit, where he retired as a Sergeant Major. How's it going, Dan? Doing well, John. How about yourself? Can't complain. Um, all right, so let's start. So you, so there's a lot to talk about. You have extensive career in the Army, uh, Special Ops career. Um, but let, let's talk about some of the, the businesses you are involved with uh, at the top of the show, and then we'll get into your story. Um, so you're an, an owner and instructor at Archon Ready Group. 
Uh, and then I am. You're also uh, running a security company. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, when I retired from the military uh, in uh, in 2015 and then had some terminal leave, you know, actually out in 2016, uh, you know, I my family and I moved out to Park City, Utah, mainly just to ski and, you know, kind of did a year of that, did some catch work where I could, but, you know, mainly just mountain biked and skied and was living the life. Um, then realized that, you know, I probably needed to get some money coming in and I was just kind of getting bored with, you know, not being around the guys and, you know, that, that, um, that culture anymore. So I did some work with uh, Velocity Training, separate from Velocity Systems, but uh, Velocity Training worked with uh, Air Force Rescue, um, you know, doing some land warfare stuff with them, which was pretty cool. And, you know, while doing that, I was actually approached by, um, you know, Mel Wick and Bill Cronin, some of the founding members of the unit, uh, about this security company, like a, a protective service detail or executive protection and at the time, it wasn't something I was, you know, super stoked to get into, although, you know, I had utmost respect for those two. And, um, you know, just, uh, you know, the pay was great. Everything seemed good. It just it just what didn't seem to be the right fit for my family or myself. So, you know, I passed on it. And, um, you know, a couple of years later, I got cold called by one of my one of my good buddies, uh, Kelly Roby, that I'd been in a squadron with. And he's like, Hey, you still interested in this thing? And I was like, uh, absolutely. Um, you know, is it still available? He's like, yep. I'm running it now. So, you know, so I came on, that was about four years ago. Um, so, you know, we, we have a, uh, a client, you know, um, the high net worth, a couple of high net worth individuals. Uh, anyway, so I was on one of the details, um, you know, for that client and, you know, did that for about two years and then, uh, moved up to director of operations for Grizz Global, and then August a year ago, they made me the CEO of, of the company. So, you know, that's kind of my day-to-day job. Um, you know, constantly trying to uh, trying to find new clients uh, or, or new avenues of you know revenue for uh, for Grizz Global, and just you know really utilize the the problem solving and the expertise you know that we had from decades of of doing stuff around the globe, uh, you know, they're at war or not at war, but, um, you know, just using those, those relationships and, uh, interpersonal skills. And then, you know, obviously the, the, you know, the craft that we honed over our time at the unit, um, you know, to, to really, uh, try and try and get some more clients. So that's kind of what I do full time now. Um, yeah. Nice. And, um, let's talk about the, uh, the butcher shop as well. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, my wife and I definitely like to eat you know, and pack as much as I can into this, uh, 160 pound frame. Um, I actually went from 155 to 170 during COVID. So I, I did do the COVID-19. I'm not proud of it, but it happened. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, so we, uh, up in park city, you know, I mean, there just wasn't anywhere where you could get, you know, really high quality cuts of meat. I mean, there's a whole foods and um, nothing against whole foods, but you know, it just, it is what it is, you know, like everything Amazon does. Right. But, um, so we have always, we always wanted to do it. We had the financial resources to do it. We just didn't have the know-how and, so we were down in Vegas and, you know, Vegas, doing work with um, Grizz and uh, Vegas is a hospitality, you know, 
uh, city and it's just, you know, what you have and who, you know, so we had hockey tickets were introduced to another couple that needed hockey tickets, you know, gave, gave them some tickets that night. We, they took us to this food truck rodeo, introduced us to one of the judges that had been a, uh, the executive chef at the Cosmopolitan and a food network uh, chop champion. And uh, he was hosting, or uh, I'm sorry, not hosting, but judging this food truck rodeo. So I talked to him. His name's John Courtney. Uh, anyways, he was moving up to Park City with his wife. So about a year overlap up there is when COVID happened. And um, we're like, hey, John, you know, we, this is something we've wanted to do. Um, you know, wanted to do this butcher shop. He's like, yeah, I'm all in. So, uh, you know, we, we opened that up. We've been open, open since January and the things, you know, going gangbusters. Um, it's pretty cool. Uh, you know, we were kind of ships passing in the night at that point. Then uh, my wife and I moved down here to Vegas and, and his wife were up in Park City. And then we have a, a third couple that's um, partners on it that are up in Park City also. But yeah, it's pretty cool. It's a little like European, you know, um, not really deli, I'll use the term deli, but European butcher shop, um, you know, it just has really, really good stuff. And you go in there and John, you know, he's, he's a genius and has all the information. So, yeah, I'm super excited that that happened. It was kind of a, I don't call it a passion project, but, you know, I, I guess it is a passion project because I had no idea about, you know, how to whack up an animal other than, you know, skinning deer and stuff growing up, so. Nice, awesome, and um, and what's the name of it for, if anyone's interested? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess I should I should promote that. It's uh, <laughs> Chop Shop Park City. Um, check us out on the web, you know, www.chopshopparkcity.com, or uh, you know, Instagram or Facebook at you know Chop Shop Park City. Nice. All right, cool. So now let's um, let's change gears a little bit and and let's talk about your um your entry into the army and uh, you can walk through uh, getting into a ranger battalion and talk about that entire experience. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, growing up, I think, you know, I was probably like all of us, you know, I, I, I mean, I just played army, you know, all the time, read every book I could about it. Uh, you know, anyways, I, I think it was something I always knew I was going to do. And then to top that off, you know, I didn't leave myself any other options. I did very poorly in school, just didn't apply myself. And, you know, maybe some, uh, some run-ins with the wall, you know, that kind of forced me down that path. So kind of set myself up for success there to go into the military. But, um, you know, like everybody said, don't trust your recruiter. So I had like this 11 x-ray contract, right? And I was like, well, what's that? They're like, oh, you know, you can, it, you can be whatever you want to be. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. You know, I told my recruiter, well, I want to go to Airborne Ranger. You know, I'll go to Airborne School and then the Ranger Regiment. I kind of knew the difference between Ranger School and, and the Regiment going into it um, just from, you know, my own research. And, uh, yep, yep, you're all good. So show up at basic training, my, you know, Drill, tell my drill sergeant, like, uh, yep, I want, I'm going to go to airborne school. He's like, no, you're not. What? He's like, yeah, you got to, uh, you know, you got to volunteer for that. So anyways, I, I forget how that came about, but somehow I got a, an airborne contract in basic training. Um, I think maybe, you know, I got like a platoon guide or something. I, I don't know. I did, I did well at it. So they, they gave me that. So I get to uh, airborne school. And I'm like, well, I want to go to Ranger Regiment. And I'm like, okay, well, there's this hut over here, and like this little place where the regimental recruiter was. 
you know, like just go over there and you know, that's where you get your, uh, your contract. So I went over there, bang on the door, you know, every day, no one's there. Uh, every day I'm sliding notes under the door, you know, they get nothing back. So it turns out the guys on, um, on block leave, you know, so th- this whole time I'm there, I'm like every day, I mean, anxiety starting to build up. Well, it comes to the end of uh, airborne school and I graduate and I've got orders to the 82nd airborne. I'm like, no, this is not, not at all what I want to do. So uh, outside of airborne school, like the Chow Hall and Barracks, there's like these wrought iron railings. Um, so the bus pulls up from Fort Bragg and, you know, the staff sergeant gets off and starts calling roll and, well, my name's on it. So I take my two duffel bags and I padlock them to this railing because I'm not, I'm not going to go to Fort Bragg. Um, anyway, so, uh, he calls my name and, you know, I'm nowhere to be found. Somebody starts pointing. So he comes over there and starts screaming at me. And, you know, he's got me locked up, a parade dressed. I'm like, man, I am not, I am saying not, like, you know, Sergeant, I'm not going to Fort Bragg. I'm going to Ranger Regiment. Blah, blah, blah. You know, article 15s for throwing around stuff like that. <laughs> um, so, uh, finally I see this black beret, you know, at the time only, uh, Ranger Regiment had the black berets. So I see this Humvee pull up and this black beret jump out. So I, I go running over there, some PFC. I'm like, I'm like, hey, um, I don't even know what to call a PFC because I'm a private too. I'm like, hey, you know, I, I want to go to to Rip. He's like, let me see your orders. So I show them to him. He rips them up. I like, go get your stuff and bring my stuff over. Throw it in the back of the Humvee, and um, a bunch of us are standing there. And they're like, okay, let's go. I'm like, oh, there's no room for us in the Humvee. They're like, that's right. So they start driving up the road and we're just running after it. You know, it's like a, you know, I don't know, a couple of miles up the road to, to regimental headquarters. So that was kind of, you know, me getting into RIP. And then RIP was kind of a blur, you know, cold, rainy, out of cold range, um, a lot of uh, poison ivy and stuff. But, uh, and then showed up at, you know, first Ranger Battalion in Savannah. And, um, you know, that was, you know, kind of what I've been looking for. And, you know, that was, that was a unique ex- experience. I actually, um, let's see my second, second jump. So my seventh jump overall, second jump in battalion, I shattered my left femur, um, on jump there at Hunter army airfield and won't get way into the story, but I ended up, you know, the whole battalion exfilled and Ranger eye box left out on this airfield for, like six hours. Jeez. So finally, finally they come back. Yeah, they came back and, and they were actually looking for a nine millimeter. One of my buddies, not one of my, but one of the guys in my platoon, Richie Fielte, he had been a hung jumper uh, on a ramp blast, same jump, uh, and his, his uh, LC ripped away, but the part that ripped away was his, uh, the part that had his nine, his Beretta, because he was a assistant gunner or something. So they were out looking for that and stumbled across me. Um, which is good for me. But uh, anyway, so that, that injury kind of put me in the company orderly room for like six months and then our battalion S3 shop for about a year till you know, they could, uh, my leg healed and I could get that steel out of, uh, that IM nail out of my femur, which really in the long term helped me out because prior to that, it was, you know, I mean, this was like, this predated everyone having nods and lasers. You know, I think I had a litten on top of my, uh, my saw, which was basically as big as the saw. And, you know, only the team leader had nods so he could see everything. None of the rest of us could see shit. Um, 
But, uh, you know, so as a, as a private, I went from lay here, suppress the bunker to six months later, I'm, you know, typing out battalion op orders for, you know, air, you know, or battalion sized, you know, airfield seizures and, and company sized live fire missions. So I'm seeing a much bigger picture as a, as a private, um, which definitely helped me, you know, when I came back when to the platoon, you know, as a specialist and uh, a corporal and, and, and ran a team. But uh, anyways, that, that was kind of like me getting um, into the Ranger Regiment and 1st Ranger Battalion. And then, um, you know, kind of that first incident that uh, when I came back to a platoon, I went to Ranger School. And then, you know, that was kind of that uh, from there. Okay, and this was pre nine eleven, or was it after nine eleven? Yeah, no, no. This was uh, this was. So I got hurt in ninety six. So this was like back to the platoon in like ninety seven or ninety eight. Went to Ranger School and then back to the platoon. So this was like this was like ninety eight. Um, and then you know worked my way up through uh, team leader to squad leader. Um, was a was a squad leader. You know when 9-11 happened uh we were actually over at minden hall uh, in england um with uh, a squadron and uh getting ready to do some some like show of force stuff for uh, i think it was montenegro or you know i think it was, i guess montenegro had like some uprising and potential coup so we were there kind of forward staged and we were doing a rehearsal and we were out flying around and all of a sudden like, Hey, you guys got to get back. So we get back. And by the time we landed and got back into this hangar, you know, uh, RD, we had been there, regimental recon detachment and uh, a squadron and, and they were just gone. And we're like, Ooh, what's going on? And no one's really telling us anything. You know, like here's live rounds. We just need you to guard this base now. So we stayed in England for like two weeks guarding uh, Mindenhall air base, which is a U.S. base in England or joint base in England, um, north of London, you know, and we just stayed there guarding this until we could get an air ride, get a, you know, a plane home. Um, and then it was, you know, we had been on, uh, first battalion was on RF1. My company was the ready company, um, you know, and 375 gets picked to go do, you know, objective Rhino as, um, as B squadron and A squadron are doing gecko. You know, and I was like, screw this. If, you know, the closest you can get to war is a war kicks off and your battalion's on Ranger Ready Force One and you're on, your company is on the standby company and a whole different, you know, uh, battalion gets to go. So that was it for me. Jacked it in at battalion and went to selection. And you went to selection in 01 or? Yep, yep. Just right, right after... You know, as soon as I, as soon as I could get back after nine uh, eleven, so that would have been, um, uh, you know, the spring of uh, of O two. Sorry, spring of O two. Okay. Okay. So, can you talk about, uh, if if anything, can you talk about your experience, sort of going through selection and and making it, and maybe how you know, was it more? Did you find it more difficult than like Ranger School or or Rip? No, I mean, I, I didn't at all, actually. I didn't find it more difficult, and I can talk about it, you know, I mean, you know, in some, some regards. So, you know, 
rip, like I say, was just kind of a blur, you know, just like an extension of basic training, you know, just more people yelling at you. Um, Ranger school. I mean, to be honest, I slept through Ranger school. I think it was, you know, probably one of the most worthless schools I ever went to. It was supposed to be a leadership school and I didn't learn anything. I remember thinking that I wanted to stay awake to learn this next block of instruction and immediately asleep. You know, I just, I, I don't understand the philosophy of that school. Uh, I've heard it's changed, but, um, for the better, uh, but it, when I went through it was, you know, just basically learn nothing and try and stay awake. Um, so, you know, going to selection, you know, I mean, I, I didn't really have like any Intel or anything going into it. Um, you know, other than there's, there's a guy in our platoon, you know, there's guys from our company and our battalion that went and they're like, yep, that guy's definitely going to make it. And they did. And then there's this one guy from our platoon that he went and everyone's like, the guy never trained up. He didn't do anything, you know, not that he wasn't super intelligent or, you know, moderately fit. But he came back and we're like, like, Slim, did you make it? He's like, yeah. Like, holy crap. And then it was just like a mass exodus. You know, if he could do it, we all could do it. That's funny. So, so we went and, or I, you know, I, myself and two of my friends went at the same time. And basically, you know, we had gotten some info on nutrition. You know, that was kind of the, about the only thing until I had was, you know, hey, you know, you can eat whatever you want type thing, take candy bars or, you know, gels or goos or whatever um but you know other than that i didn't really know anything and and going up there um you know the uh i I guess you know without without giving up the ghost on anything what what i found was that the process was extremely liberating for me because it was i could do what i wanted when i wanted how i wanted i mean basically there was very minimal by design, there's very minimal instruction, you know, it's, um, and there's no encouragement or discouragement. It's just, here's where to be, uh, you know, where, what time and how much weight to have, you know, and people would melt down of, you know, should I wear my Gore-Tex? Should I not wear my Gore-Tex? Uh, you know, do I have to have a hat on a PC on or not? You know, it's just like, wow, guys, like we can do whatever we want as long as we're there with at that time with that weight. You know, and so for me, that was super liberating um, and kind of what I'd wanted my whole military career to be. Um, you know, so I kind of finish up the, uh, you know, selection at the end of it. There's a um, there's a part where, you know, you get talked to and stuff. And I, I didn't do as good at, at that portion of it. Um, I was treating it more like a uh, promotion board or an NCO of the quarter board. And I had done quite a few of these NCO of the quarter boards had actually been USASOC NCO of the year, like two years running and regimental NCO of the year, like for three years. So I, I was treating it like that and it wasn't at all what they were looking for. So, uh, you know, I, I got told to come back the next day and rethink about what I was doing. But at, at the end of it, you know, they decided, you know, they, they told me, you know, Hey, we're going to take a chance on you and Sergeant Ibach. And um, like, you know, I was very happy about that. And I went across, the hall um, up there and they have kind of everything that you'll be issued when you get to the unit to the operator training course is laid out there. It's a lot of stuff, you know, I mean, you can, you can imagine all the different mission sets and all the equipment and paraphernalia that goes along with it, but it's all laid out in all different sizes. And the idea is that you try everything on there so that day one of OTC, you can start training. You just get issued everything in your size. Well, 
I was convinced that they were going to change their mind. So I just started throwing shit on and saying it fit. So, <laughs> so, so they, they didn't want to vote TC. I had like boots that were too small, gloves that were too big. I had like a uh, space, you know, a dark helmet, space balls helmet. Um, <laughs> <you know? laughs> so I had ended up having to DX everything when I got to OTC, but um, <laughs> it, it all worked out, man. But, but yeah, I mean, I mean, selection was, was great. I mean, I had, I, I had a good, a really good time up there. I mean, you know, so anyways. So the, the special mission units, like when compared to an infantry unit is much smaller in size. Uh, since the wars began, the, the special mission units are responsible for an incredibly high number of enemy leadership killed or captured on the battlefield. Uh, some of the things that took place in Iraq from a battlefield perspective are it's quite remarkable. The dismantling of terror networks uh, at the speed and pace that the, the task force was working crushed al-Qaeda in Iraq. Uh, but throughout this campaign, the, the British SAS was also in Iraq and going after some of these groups. Um, so from the origins of the unit to working with uh, British special forces on some of the most significant counterterrorism operations in our history, uh, there's a strong connection between the American special mission units and the British special mission units. Uh, you have a, a unique experience in this regard. Previously, I'd had a former uh, JTF-2 sniper on the podcast, and JTF-2 for the audience is Canada's Tier 1 unit. Uh, the Canadians hold several of some of the, the longest recorded sniper kills. Um, so when I asked him, like, what, <clears throat> what contributes to that? He was basically saying all of the training that they do with American units, British units, and other uh, special operation units, uh, and, and all the knowledge sharing that they, they have, you guys have going on is what uh, contributes to that. Uh, so can you talk about your time with the SAS and, and how that cross-training and sort of information sharing amongst uh, units uh, is beneficial? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So uh, for sure. So let's see, in, in, in 2005, um, going into just kind of how I, little backstory on how I got uh, assigned to the SAS. So, you know, from the get-go, uh, you know, we get over there and we start these wars kick off. Um, you know, the SAS was involved, um, you know, and we'd, we'd be running around with them, uh, you know, whether it be out in the desert or in Baghdad or different parts of the, of the country. Uh, you know, a lot of the time they had kind of the southern portion, uh, Baghdad South uh, in, in, at the beginning. But anyways, uh, in 2005, it was out near the Syrian border and, you know, we got, our vehicle had gotten blown up uh, by a large, uh, pressure plate IED, um, it was like five, one, five, five rounds wired together, killed them, half my team and maimed the rest of us pretty good. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So I was in a coma for a while and then, uh, ended up having to cut out a portion of my brain. Uh, luckily, I guess it was a portion I didn't need. Um, um, but, uh, anyhow, deployed a few more times after that and then started having seizures. And so by 2007, um, I was diagnosed with, as being epileptic uh, and um, you know, just needed to find other stuff to do to still support the unit. So, you know, I went, went to our 
minute, uh, Sergeant Major, I was like, hey, Bill, like, I'm going to have to eat a shit sandwich here. Just, you know, what's the, what's the five shittiest jobs you have? And let me pick which shit sandwich I'm going to eat. And to be honest, one of them was, hey, I need somebody to be the liaison to uh, the SAS in, in England, in Hereford. I was like, well, I will definitely do that if I can take my family. Because if I go by myself, I'm going to come back without a family. Right. You know, I mean, it's just, you know, it's, you know, it just is what it is. Uh, but um, she was, he was like, yep, fully supported it. So, you know, my wife and, and my, my son, who was, uh, yeah, I guess he turned seven while we were over there. So six turning seven, you know, we went over there and, um, and spent time. I was assigned to uh, a squadron, uh, 2 SAS, uh, you know, as they trained up and then pulled a UK CT standby squadron. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me. But, you know, it was really cool seeing the way that they did things. They, they have the role of, you know, and I'm not trying to, you know, give anything up. This is all open source stuff. I mean, they also have the role of, of uh, providing CT or counterterrorism, you know, there within the, the United Kingdom, which right. is something you know, we don't, we do not have, um, you know, uh, by design here in, in the U.S., you know, we don't want our, our military forces running around uh, doing stuff. We, I guess we do now in the capital, don't we? But um, anyways, the, uh, the, uh, so I, I did learn a lot from them and, you know, made some, some great friends over, over, uh, over my time there. And, you know, I've kept in touch with them. But, uh, you know, I think one of the biggest things that, that I learned from them was they just, they don't have the budget the U.S. has, you know, and right. and what it came down to is regardless of, you know, equipment or gadget gadgets or, you know, anything else that, you know, we had the luxury of having, it comes down to the man, the right man or, you know, the right person for the, for the job. And that goes back to the whole selection process. And you see this across, you know, a, a lot of different uh, arenas to include to include corporate America, uh, law enforcement, uh, the U.S. military, special operations, and then you know um, the tiers is 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 the selection process really selecting the right person that you need? Um, you know, and, and I, I've seen different selection processes take what they thought another one was doing. And thinking, well, because, because, you know, organization X is doing it, is doing this event or taking this test, then our, our, our organization should also do it because that will get us the right person. What they fail to understand is that it will get you a person, but it might not be the right person for that you're looking for, for your job. Um, you know, and they, and, and even back to Grizz, you know, I, when I, when I'm hiring people, there's people, you know, we hire a lot of people out of, out of the unit for uh, security details. And there's people that I would absolutely trust my life with, you know, going in a room and have, you know, for decades, but you know, I might not want them on this job. They might not have the right temperament or, you know, the, you know, the right skills for, for this job or a specific client, you know, within the job. So it all goes down to come back uh, kind of full circle to, you know, that selection of, you know, how do you find the right person for the right job? And, you know, that we did 
uh, derive a lot of our selection process from the Brits. Right. Um, ours did morph from theirs. And, and actually, uh, what, I think it was like Mad Cow or something, you know, a couple, not a couple years ago, you know, a decade or more ago, the, uh, something was going on in England and they had to run selection uh, here. And, you know, it, it was interesting to see it, uh, you know, having run our selection a few times and gone through it once, uh, having then seeing, you know, their selection being run here in the States and going through it over in uh, England, um, just seeing the difference uh, in the two, not right, wrong or indifferent, just, uh, you know, the, the ways that they go about uh, getting to the right, the right person. Uh, right. You know. And even though there's a lot of similarities, I would imagine there's just some differences at the you know personality level. Probably it probably changes the way some things are done as well. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there's cultural there's cultural things. There's uh, you know there there is uh, definitely uh, personalities. I mean, even within our unit, there was each squadron had its own personality. Um, you know, and and then within you know the greater uh, organization, you know, the tiers obviously have their different personalities. Um, but yeah. And then, you know, like I said, the, the, the SAS, you know, they, they have a personality that's, that's much akin to ours, but, uh, you know, somewhat different also. So how many deployments were you at, at, at that moment where you were injured? Well, I guess that was my fifth deployment uh, let's see yeah fourth or fifth deployment i don't remember i think it was my fifth one okay um yeah and at the time we were doing we only had the three squadrons so we were doing you know uh 90 days on or you know three months on uh six months off and just kind of running running at that pace and in those days iraq was a pretty dangerous place it was i mean it was uh you know it was it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't, it, it was the, so we had, you know, I mean, we started out chasing the regime and that was, that was super like benign. I mean, not, not that, you know, some, some of those, um, you know, when, when Uday and Kuse were killed, I mean, that was, you know, a, a big grenade throwing fight. I, I wasn't there for it, but, you know, I mean, you know, hearing the stories, um, you know, so, I mean, there was there, the, the times that it got, got super violent. But there's also times, you know, you're you were looking or you're going after like the mechanic of a car that drove, you know, uh, was a car to car service that drove one of the regime members around. That guy doesn't know he's wanted, you know. So it was just sometimes, you know, knock on his door and, you know, hey, buddy, you know, or even sometimes they weren't home. We just leave a note at their door and be like, hey, turn yourself in, bring this note and turn yourself in at, you know, whatever gate. Um, into the green zone or whatever bridge onto the green zone. And, you know, they may be brought to us and just, you know, just ask a few questions, not really interrogated at all. Just, Hey, you know, what can you tell us, you know, type thing. So, you know, there, there was all levels of, of uh, full, full spectrum of, of, uh, you know, warfare there. Um, but yeah, as we started pushing out and really dealing with the foreign fighter networks, uh, that's when it started to get a lot more violent, um, you know, I really, you know, I mean, I, I don't, you could say that we created it or we created the void that uh, allowed, you know, all that to come in. Just like you could say we created the void that allowed ISIS, you know, it, not we, but the U.S. government. Um, 
you know, we, uh, I remember, you know, when we got to Baghdad after the invasion and everyone was super happy and, you know, you, we were going out to eat and, you know, just, you know, we didn't, we didn't have armor on you basically just have a pistol down your pants, you know, and, um, or in your pocket and just going out to eat every night and going to get an ice cream and going to the markets and everybody was super excited and you show up six months later and everybody's a little leery of you, you know, and it's just like, what's this, what is this democracy and how is it benefiting me? You know, and then, you know, once the regime was done, there was kind of like a void there of, you know, of leadership within Iraq. Uh, you know, I mean, I know that state department had a role, but you know, there was kind of a void there as perceived by me, you know, I, I didn't have all the, all the info or anything. And then you kind of saw Al Qaeda move in and, and, you know, kind of uh, fill that void. And then the foreign fighter flow, you know, coming up out of Africa through uh, Syria and then in, in across, you know, the border. And then that pushed us out, you know, towards, uh, um, uh, you know, hit and Al Qaeda and Al Assad and everything. And, and just kind of, you know, put, put a lot of the effort out that way to kind of stop the, the flow of foreign fighters, uh, you know, into the, the populace. So you brought up a few interesting points. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned the foreign fighters coming in. I feel like that's something that a lot of people, sort of general public, uh, they don't really understand how that some of that works. Um, so essentially, a lot of these organizations are transnational, meaning you have al-Qaeda fighters or al-Qaeda-affiliated al groups in Africa or in, in the Philippines or something, and they rotate fighters into different countries, um, almost like, you know, a, a military deploys to different countries, essentially. Um, it's probably not as organized in some ways, but would you say once the foreign fighters got there that that's when the, uh, the operational tempo for you guys kicked up? Um, it, it, it did kick up. I mean, our, you know, our organization was used as like a bandaid, right? So we kind of went all over that country we, we would base out of you know kind of large large scale or, or you know large uh, bases you know whether it be um uh you know baghdad or you know biop and, and then um you know uh al-assad or any, anywhere really where we could put the helicopter package and then you know by using by using different targeting means um you know, we could launch quickly and and uh, and prosecute targets. Uh, you know, pretty rapidly uh, with, with with you know super high fidelity. Um, but yeah, we these uh, we're getting you know foreign fighters coming in, and these IED cells um, were springing up, and you know they were it, it was classic terror, right? How do you disturb a populace to create terror? You know, and and therefore destabilizing a country. So, I mean, that's all they were really trying to do. They weren't going to, it wasn't quite up to the level of ISIS. I mean, ISIS, you know, in the Corazon group, you know, when they got to that level, then they're, they were actually trying to create wealth, generate wealth and control, you know, a, a caliphate, right? right. Um, and actually govern, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, Al-Qaeda, we saw more as they're just trying to disrupt and make it hard and therefore force the U.S. to apply more, you know, blood, sweat and tears or treasure, you know, in, into the country, uh, you know, to no real end. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, it was, uh, I think one of, the, one of the things that frustrated me personally was, you know, I'd get mission statements, which, you know, I was, I was always very happy. One, one thing I loved about the unit, um, you know, when I was, uh, when I was like 28 years old, uh, my, it was my second deployment to Iraq. And basically I was told by myself to go up into Kurdistan, uh, help, you know, fifth group had gone up there and stood up the, or helped the Kurds, you know, during the invasion. And, uh, they're like, Hey, we need you to go up there and, um, help stand up a, a the, what turned out to be the CTG, the Kurdish counter-terrorist group, uh, under, you know, Manjwa and, uh, Talibani. And, uh, you know, we need you to stand this up and stop Iran from sending across, uh, technology for explosively formed projectiles. Um, you know, it's like, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, I've never done this stuff coming from Ranger Regiment. You know, it wasn't like I was an SF guy. Like, right. You know, I, I figured it out. I made, you know, I, I made a lot more mistakes than I did positive things. But, you know, I learned from it. Um, and I didn't spend, a, you know, an exorbitant amount of U.S. government's money doing it. But, um, <laughs> the, uh, you know, one of the things that really kind of, uh, but, but I guess back to the mission statement. So my mission statement for that was just, Stop Iranian flow of technology, you know, not how or anything. Just go do it, which was great. It was scary, but great to have that level of freedom. Right. But on the on the flip side, you know, we would as a it, you know as a task force going into say Iraq, we would get a mission statement from higher saying just you know uh, disrupt Al Qaeda. It wasn't ever stop Al Qaeda or kill Al Qaeda or crush Al Qaeda. So it was like disrupt them till when? Till Christ comes back? Like you know, how how do we win this? It always it and again, it's just my perception of it, but it always seemed un unwinnable. Um, no, I mean we I, we had a blast doing it. And we took a lot of bad actors off off the board, and you know it, it was all it was all good. But you know, in the back of my mind, I was always like, is this the are we going about it the right way? Like, would it be better? And it probably was being done at a high level that I just didn't see, but being just a band-aid, there's all these battle space owners, uh, you know, so you had these, these large units that controlled huge swaths of, of the country and they were responsible for that. And they deployed their, their assets as needed. We had specific targeting methods and we would just fly in and swap a specific cell or individual or you know any something like that and and then detain killer you know killer capture and, and then fly away so this band-aid would fly around and be applied as needed to stop hemorrhaging um and it always it always seemed to me that it maybe was not in conjunction with the best overarching plan but again you know that's that's just me we, i had a great time doing it it just well, you know that that's something I've I've heard before from uh, guys at the tier one level. Like, not put, not it wasn't put in that way, but they did speak about how <clears throat> how difficult it was for like you know the the infantry working in some of those areas where it's like the, the you guys would go in, you know, hit your target, and then leave, and then the infantry guys got to kind of stay around for you know a year or however long. Um, their rotations were, uh, but that that's an interesting perspective. So I'm kind of glad you brought up Iran because I would like to talk about them a little bit. So um, Qasem Soleimani was killed in uh, 2020, uh, January 2020, 
Um, and it was really a shocking thing for me to see the, you know, get the notification on my phone and I'm, I'm looking and I was like, holy shit. Uh, so I would say for like a, a full 24 hours, I thought there may be some kind of overt conflict with Iran. Um, but right after that 24 hours, I'm like, nah, I don't think so. But um, so he was a bad dude. And you saw at the time in the, the aftermath of it, you saw some media outlets in the U.S. trying to like paint him as sort of this good guy. Um, and and a, a large, or probably all of that is due to the, the opposition to Donald Trump uh, from the media side. So uh, do you have any experience with or, or were you hearing about some of the things that the Iranian special forces were doing in Iraq uh, during the years that you were there? Yeah, of course. So, um, you know, so Soleimani, you know, I mean, he was always on our radar, you know, anytime. And he made, he made uh, you know, forays into Iraq, you know, to, to talk to people and meet with people. And, um, you know, we would launch, you know, or when I say we, you know, at one time it was while I was there and, you know, other times you know, organizations would, would attempt to kill or capture him. Um, we, my, my troop just missed him one time. I mean, you know, we, we were chasing him in helicopters in his convoy and, you know, he was, he was moving quite a bit. Um, but, uh, anyways, you know, we, we weren't able to uh, kill or capture him. Uh, but, um, you know, we, we definitely saw, Maybe not on on our end, like at the tier level, but we definitely saw the uh, at the U.S. government level the Iranian influence, you know, whether it be through the explosive form projectiles, um, the IED technology, the uh, you know the training, and just kind of the um, you saw a better you saw a better more highly trained and equipped um, enemy. You know, now whether that was coming from Al Qaeda or coming from Iran, uh, you know, I think it depended where you were in the country and uh, you know who you were going against at that that particular time. But um, but they did, you know, they they definitely had an influence and were always on our radar. Uh, you know, to the point of that that night, or it was a couple of days that we were chasing uh, Soleimani up in uh, up in northern Iraq, um, and thought it we had him cornered in Erbil and. Um, in this one building, and you know, we were we were calling out the building, and uh, somehow he had he had gotten away. But there there was a few uh, high level um, people in the building, and that we ended up detaining. But uh, anyways, you know, it was, it was a it, it, so they, they did have influence definitely in the region. Um, but uh, you know, it, it seemed to all be a. Uh, in an effort to again destabilize the American government, well, and the Iraqi government, really, right, and sort of just create that chaos and uh, all that. Um, so most of what takes place, you know, on the level where you spent your career uh, is classified. Uh, most of the guys I talk to at the tier one level are against books and, and that sort of thing. Um, but in, on a flip side, I would imagine the, the notoriety and, and the sort of buzz and mystique of some of these books and stories uh, sort of create a level of fear in the enemies of the United States. Um, if a group <clears throat> thinks about taking somebody hostage, for example, 
they know that there are units that are going to go after them. But a, a couple of years ago, there was a, a report uh, that Kim Jong-un, the di dictator of North Korea, in particular, he feared an, a potential assassination attempt from uh, U.S. Navy SEALs. What are your thoughts on, on some of that? Yeah, yeah, Charlie's Charlie Sheen, right? You know, go get him. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I can't really speak to that. I mean, I, it seems like, you know, we, we have, um, you know, I mean, we, we've done a fair number of hostage rescue uh, missions, um, you know, be, between, you know, the Navy and, and us. You know, it, they've generally been in the, the theaters of armed conflict. Um, you know, and then the, the Navy has had some, you know, that have been you know, made into some, some movies about, you know, some ships and stuff that have been taken. Right. Um, you know, and I, I mean, I think that that should always be there for, you know, anyone that thinks about taking American hostages that, you know, that, that is a, I think that's a great deterrent. Um, you know, the, there's also a lot of, you know, how, how that whole process happens is, you know, is, is a lot of money to the U.S. It's, uh, you know, it takes a lot of political capital, um, depending if it's uh, other members of other nations, you know, they have buy-in of whether or not the mission gets approved or execute authority is given. Uh, for you know, a hostage so rescue. Right, right. You know, if you had, say, a multinational group of hostages, you know, those other countries, you know, have, have a buy-in on whether or not, you know, uh, an assault force gets launched or if it's a, you know, a unilateral or a, uh, you know, multinational assault force and how all that's done. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot that goes into it, uh, but I do think it, it should always be a deterrent. I mean, that's why the organizations were stood up was to, to be that deterrent, um, you know, two, two hostage takers. Um, you know, I think during, you know, the past, since 9-11, a lot of that has, a lot of the effort has been more of, you know, keeping all that, that threat to the homeland, uh, you know, away from the homeland. Uh, so the, the, you know, the, like I said, that we've done hostage rescue missions, but they've generally been, been in, 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 you know, Iraq or, uh, you know, Horn of Africa or, Afghanistan or Syria. So I know the unit had conducted several hostage rescues in Iraq. Were you ever on any of those uh, missions? I was. Um, I, I was not on any of them where we actually found the people we were looking for, but, um, you know, some of them lasted over multiple squadrons deployments. So, uh, so yeah, it was kind of a constant search and, you know, it wasn't, I mean, we dedicated effort towards it, absolutely. And it just, you know, if you didn't have anything to go on and you prosecuted targets, you did have something to go on. Are you able to talk to um, sort of the, the difference in approach or the mindset of the operators if you're going to a place where, let's say, there's an IED maker, a bomb maker, um, and your mission is to kill or capture the guy versus you're going to a house where you think there may be hostages and you have to rescue them. Can you just talk about the difference in approach or like, is there anything you can speak about in that topic? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a, it's totally uh, a different mindset. Um, in, in my, my opinion, you know, I mean, I 
hostage rescue, I'm there to put myself between the hostage and the hostage taker. You know, I'm either going to do that through surgical fire or I'm physically going to put myself in that position. Um, you know, that's where the whole speed, surprise, violence of action, you know, the use of uh, dogs or you know, anything we can to gain the upper hand, uh, you know, to, again, you know, save the hostages. Um, you know, one, one thing that uh, we had, we had some Russians come over, um, you know, from that, uh, that school uh, hostage situation in Beslan. And, you know, one of the things that I took from them was, and it not really occurred to me prior, and this was, you know, maybe after being at work for you know, six, eight years, um, was like, they're, they're like, you Americans think that you're going to rescue all the hostages and high five and drink Budweiser. He's like, if you get one hostage out, it's a success. And, you know, it really kind of resonated with me. Not that it changed the way we did anything or the speed at which we worked at or anything, but just that that, uh, you know, it just, it, it, it kind of made me realize that, you know, it, what failure really was, you know, is it, is it, was, is failure where we do lose a hostage, which, you know, is absolutely horrible, or is it, you know, just the mission is, it is a total, is a total failure, or is there no failure at all, you know, you know, kind of going back to, um, you know, Eagle Claw and everything, it's just, you know, the, the, the guts to try type thing. Um, you know, so it, it, anyways, that kind of resonated with me. But back back to your question, you know, I mean, if it's if it's just you know some scumbag IED maker or something, I, I'm not going to risk my life or any of my mates' lives, you know, going in after this guy. Uh, you know, I may not even risk a, a dog in there. I mean, you know, that's that's where you know we're trying to get that guy to make or you know that person to uh, to vote. You know, uh, we may have enough information on them and the rules of engagement allow, you know, for just a kinetic strike on them. Um, you know, meaning, you know, somebody, you know, basically a, an aircraft drops a bomb on them. Um, you know, and, or, uh, you know, if we do show up at their house, you know, we're going to try and get that. We're going to try and elicit gunfire from them so that, uh, you know, we can, we can engage in them, you know, if the rules of engagement, uh, are, are set that way. And, you know, at some point, it'll ultimately will have to come in and then, you know, then your clearing techniques are adjusted based on the fact that there's a guy in here that might have a bomb, you know, versus I, I got to get in there and, and stop, you know, a hostage taker from executing a hostage. So there's inherently more risk uh, for the operators if you're on a hostage rescue versus you're on a, a kill capture mission. Absolutely. But yeah, uh, well, I'm going to say more risk. You're just willing to take more risk. Okay. So yeah, I mean, you're, you're willing, I mean, and, and that's why, you know, I'll go down a little bit of a rabbit hole here, but you know, that that's why the backup pistol, right. And, um, cause when, if your primary went down, I don't have time to fix my primary. I mean, your rifle, I have to transition to a pistol because I have to make a shot. Um, you know, or if I'm going in with two pistols, I have to transition from one pistol to the other. Um, you know, and then you start asking some organizations, you know, okay, so why do you have a pistol? Well, I need a backup. Well, uh, do you or don't you? Because like when we were going, you know, straight up combat, not hostage rescue, you know, it, it was shooter's choice, but most guys didn't carry a pistol. Um, 
you know, maybe you carried an extra magazine for your, for your rifle or something. Uh, you know, and if your rifle went down, you just took a knee and got it back up. Um, you know, that, that, that transitioning to the pistol was really a, a, a hostage rescue thing, but, um, because you had to do it, right? I, I have to continue to move forward and and, uh, and and put my take a shot, surgical shot, or get myself in between the hostage and the hostage taker. So, are you able to talk about? So, since you joined um, pre nine eleven, um, and I've heard this from different guys on different podcasts, are, are you able to talk to uh, some of the differences in in approach? Like one of the things that you hear in books or, or people talking about is guys would throw the flashbang in and, and run through the door and, and then you, you fight it out inside a room or whatever. Um, did any of that change over time with experience for you guys, if you're able to talk about that? Yeah. I mean, the, the you know, the, the techniques and tactics and procedures evolve daily. Um, you know, I remember, you know, we started, it was my squadron, you know, I can only speak to what I, I was there for, you know, we, we started, you know, doing these huge assaults on, you know, like descending teams, like blowing in through wind, you know, maybe not descending and blowing in through windows, but they were climbing teams, window charges and all this stuff at the start of the war. And I'm like, wait, you know, does this really make sense? Like, again, we're going after this mechanic type guy to just ask him, you know, where's the car at? So maybe we can beacon it. So maybe we can, you know, find out where it goes to pick somebody up. You know, do we really need to, you know, do a, a squadron assault on this guy's house? Um, you know, so even from changing those kind of techniques to constantly evolving, um, you know, everything, uh, whether it be through in training or, or at war, uh, you know, one thing that, that the organization was very, very good at was the after action review. And they were, uh, they were super brutal. Um, we didn't spend any time at all on what went right. So there wasn't a lot of, uh, okay, uh, John, you know, I really want to, want to thank, you know, John's wife brought in the cupcakes today and they were delicious. I want to thank John for that. You know, there, there just wasn't any of that. It was, it was, Hey John, you know, what the fuck? Where were you, what were you doing? You know, direction of clear was to the left. And you went right, you know, what were you doing type thing? You know, and, and um, it, it, we forced the topic of the stuff that went wrong because, hey, the pager might go off in 30 seconds and we, we know this is wrong and we have to correct it. So it's that whole uh, issue discussion recommendation format. Um, you know, what's the issue? Let's discuss it and let's, let's recommend a fix to it. And then let's, next time we, we tomorrow when we go out on another mission at combat in combat or tomorrow when we go down to the range again let's implement that uh recommendation and if it works it becomes the standard operating procedure um you know and then that's disseminated across the organization so what working with you know law enforcement working with the military Working with corporate America, like you just don't, you don't see that people are in their own little bubbles and own little silos and they talk sideways and down yeah. and they don't, they, they don't, they don't allow for uh, solutions to come up. And if they do, they're immediately squashed because either it's perceived to be too hard to do or it's going to be too costly or anything like that. And if they do succeed at it, well then, okay, we, our little section department, 
whatever has to be successful. So we can't share this because we, we have to be better than everybody else. And that was the exact opposite uh, thought process that we had. Ours was, we have to share this because why would I allow anyone else to go through this experience without learning from my mistake? Um, you know, whether it be an actual mistake or, you know, a, a uh, something that the enemy in, induced to us. Um, you know, so even to a point of, you know, a deployed squadron would have, uh, you know, conduct a mission, some, you know, some mission, they ran into some issue, they would hot wash it or AR it internally, they would sort it all out, you know, brutally and honestly, they would come up with a solution. And then the whole rest of the unit, it would be put out, hey, you know, at launch or after launch, uh, you know, in the chow hall, can be BTC'd in, A squadron's going to back brief us on objective, you know, anvil or whatever it was, you know, what, you know, that happened last night or the night before. So, you know, everybody that was, that was possible would get in there and, and listen to, to their comments. And it, it just helped flatten it out. I mean, we we're downrange trying to recreate the situation they had been in, you know, and we'd implement it into our, our uh, deployment and our rotation. So that, that whole process is basically like an extreme you know, form of adaptability. Um, and, and so it's interesting when you, you mentioned, you said it was kind of brutal. Um, so that's just brutally honest. Uh, you know, you fucked up. What were you doing? And so in those type of environments, you know, like in a, when you're sitting down trying to figure things out, uh, I would imagine that sort of tempers flare a little bit. Yeah, they, they do, but everyone everyone kind of knew it going in. They were never it's never a personal attack, right? You know, it was just. Um, although, I mean, if you're an outsider watching it, you absolutely like, oh my god, super uncomfortable. But um, <laughs> but you know, it was just everyone knew that this is the process, you know, to to make it better. Um, because you know, I mean, it's it, it pretty much everything we did was would or could be life or death. You know, so we better figure it out, you know, we better figure it out quick uh, because something has changed and what we were doing isn't working anymore. So now we got to try something new. So, so like here, here's a here's a perfect example. We had a uh, first rotation to Iraq. We had a target that um, there was a, guy, a barricaded shooter and he ended up, you know, um, we didn't lose anybody, but he uh, he shot four, four of our guys in our, in our troop. Um, one of the guys, uh, you know, um, like a bullet lodged against his spine. And so he, he was, he was probably the most, he was the worst off. But when we got back, we realized that everyone had just picked up bits and pieces of his kit or his equipment or, you know, just different things. And like, we were trying to account for everything. And it was just, you know, like, like a ship show trying to like, well, who, who's got the pistol? Who's got the, you know, who's got these different bits and pieces. And, and, you know, I mean, this is, this is crazy that this had not been thought of before, but we're like, maybe we should like tape a bag to the litters, you know, like a, something that's got shoulder straps on it, like a, not a rucksack, but you know, something, uh, you know, like a North face duffel bag or something like that. So we can put all this crap in it, you know, and then it's all together and one person can hump it out of there. And uh, anyway, so like just little stuff like that, you know, obviously well, we're going out again tomorrow night. Somebody might get shot again tomorrow night. Let's not have to deal with 
this, you know, losing two more hours of sleep because we're trying to account for stuff that when we can just throw it all in a bag. So anyways, there's a, a, a kind of a, a basic example. Earlier you mentioned um, you know, when you hit a target, there, there are times where you're not, you're like, oh, I, we're not going to risk our lives and, and sort of pull off a, a risky, you know, breeze into a house or, or even send a dog in. Um, can you talk about uh, the dogs at all and, and uh, maybe uh, some of the, the positive effects they've had uh, when you guys were running ops or, or maybe even a time where a dog might have saved your life or a teammate's life? Yeah, I mean, I uh, so I just went to um, retirement for one of my uh, one of my good friends uh, just the other week, and um, you know he he was one of the like one of the first dog handlers, and uh, you know had a a very long career doing it, and um, you know they were telling a story. I, w- I, would, I had been retired when this when this incident happened. Or maybe I was working uh, somewhere else in the building. I'm not sure, but. You know, they were telling a story about, you know, they had got an offset or the helicopters had overshot uh, a landing zone in Afghanistan and stuck them in up on a mountain because they were getting shot at. And they had to work their way down the mountain and they knew the guys were down there. And it's like, you know, hey, we know they're there. We hear them shooting. They're kind of down to this last like, like almost like a trench type thing or, you know, like they're probably around that corner, like, okay. And they had to send the dog and sure enough, it makes around the corner and just gets, you know, get killed by a belt fed machine gun like PKM. Um, You know, and then they were able to utilize grenades and everything to destroy that, that person and and his weapon. Um, You know, I mean, that's kind of what the dogs were. And, you know, we got the, we got the idea from the Israelis and, uh, you know, they, they took it, even a even a step further at times by putting explosive vests on the dog and when it would go in and be killed you know by by whoever was in there they then had the option of detonating the dog Ooh. right and potentially trying to kill you know depending how close it was to or they thought it was to the the, uh, the person that had shot it but i mean they were you know it, it's this horrible I, I mean i have a number of animals and i've had them you know, our family has always had animals and uh, we love them. It's just, you know, it's a horrible thing to, you know, live with and train with and, you know, do everything you can with this animal and then know that it's really just a, a weapon. You know, it's a tool and it, it, its job is to die so you can live. Right. Um, you know, and, and that's a, that's a hard you really see it with law enforcement. Uh, now they have totally different uh, constraints and restraints, but um, you know it was something that was that was it always weighed heavy on the, the the handlers. You know when when they lost dogs, but that's what the dogs were for was you know to be lost so that that we could live. Yeah, I interviewed a guy. <clears throat> he was at the unit. I don't know if if you're familiar with him. Uh, his name is Dave Nielsen. And um, he was a dog handler for a little bit, and then he he went back to being a, you know an operator and a, a sniper. Um, but his his dog was uh, the dog that he was running with. Uh, I, I think it was 06, was killed in Iraq, and um, 
or, or they assumed she was killed, but they couldn't find her. And it was a nighttime lap, and then, the, you know, the sun starts coming up, and they, they've been looking for a, a while at this point, and they just couldn't find her. Um, so it wasn't like there was an actual body or something like that, and they, they ended up having to leave because the, the sun was coming up, and, you know, more bad guys were coming into the area. But uh, that was something that he, he hadn't gotten over you know, and probably still to this day, but I know it was a couple of years ago when I first spoke to him. And um, it was something that he was just starting to feel better about a few years ago. So I know that's you know, something that's extremely difficult for the handlers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, aside from that, you know, the emotional baggage that, you know, that comes with, uh, um, you know, those, those handlers that we had were, uh, I mean, they were just complete studs. I mean, imagine taking all the, all the skill sets that we had, uh, and now you have to do them just as well as everybody else, but you got a Tasmanian devil, you know, tied on a three foot lead. Your hip. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it was bonkers watching these guys do, you know, you got to jump out planes. You got to, you know, walk the tightrope across to like from building to building. You got to be on, you, know, you got to do everything, but you got, you know, Taz attached to you. So, uh, you know, utmost respect for those guys is something, you know, selfishly, uh, well, I love, like I said, I love animals. Those are just, you know, I, I was happy to uh, not have to do that. <laughs> so you also, we're an instructor at uh, the operator training course, which is where guys go through after they pass uh, the the first phase of selection. Um, so you were, you know, doing that. Did you do that after your time uh, in the UK? I did. So um, I came back from uh, from the UK, and and again. Uh, it was one of those situations where, so normally, you know, uh, OTC instructors are um, ex-team leaders from the unit or from the squadron that are sent up there that then, you know, are expected to come back or, you know, like, um, yeah, the, the squadron expects them to come back then and be troop sergeant majors. Uh, I, I was not going to be in that situation just because of my medical condition. But, um, you know, I had a, I had a, uh, squadron sergeant major at the time that, you know, probably be value added up there. And so, you know, he sent me up there. Um, so I was an anomaly, I guess, in, in that regard. So I, I was not, there's no way I was coming back as a, as a troop sergeant major. Um, you know, so I, di- I did go up there and, uh, and instruct. I was in the, you know, in the shooting program, but also helped out in the CQB program. And, you know, e- even that just, you know, with the, uh, with the head trauma, the concussions, um, you know, even from both of those programs, you know, there's days it was just tough to get out of bed. Um, you know, all said and done when I retired, I retired with 1500 concussions, you wow. know, uh, three, three TBIs, one penetrating head trauma and was, was in a coma, you know, for a month. Um, you now those concussions ranged from, you know, micro to, to macro, but, um, that's kind of what it, at one point, of being in selection and training, which the operator training course falls under, uh, you know, we had with an additional tasking of providing a liaison to the national capital region up in Washington, DC, uh, you know, to kind of 
do everything with the uh, you know CIA, DIA, State Treasury, Pentagon, White House, um, you know, all, all the departments and 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 uh, agencies. So I ended up uh, going up and doing that, and actually stayed up there for three years uh, doing that job, kind of Monday to Friday, um, just kind of you know not taking one for the team, but just I was like this is probably the best. The way I can best serve the organization is to is to let people that number one are going to go back to squadron, and number two just aren't you know getting getting crushed by the you know their job uh, you know do, doing this having they, them having to step out and go up to DC. Um, so I just kind of absorbed that job for three years. Okay, and um, so then you referred to the some of the difficulties of of going through the, the shooting and stuff. So what people don't realize is when you're shooting, especially in confined spaces, uh, there's concussions from the, the, the rifles. Um, you guys are maybe breaching and, and tossing grenades and, and things like that. And, you know, while you're there and, and that's part of the job to, to train to do that stuff, uh, you, you are getting, you know, sort of uh, banged up a little bit on the inside. And then I would imagine that it could have been worse for you because you would have, you'd had a serious uh, injury prior to that. Um, so are you able to, so you mentioned earlier about how you got wounded. Um, are you able to talk about that, that situation or, or, or do you want yeah, to? Yeah, I mean, I, I can, I, I can describe it as it was relayed to me. I don't remember any of it actually had retrograded, uh, you know, I'd retrograde amnesia for about two weeks before it happened. Um, we were, so like the, uh, at the time, the place to be was doing Baghdad SWAT. Like you're, uh, you know, in Baghdad, just crushing targets every night, living in a good house, uh, you know, eating good and everything. So, you know, my troop had that rotation and then, uh, the surge happened, uh, they call it snake eyes or something. And, uh, a squadron came over and bumped us out. So they pushed us out. And we got stuck in Al Qaim. And Al Qaim, uh, you know, nothing against anybody in the Marine Corps uh, that's listening to this, but it was a Marine Corps base. And it was, <laughs> it was basically just a hole in the sand. <laughs> and uh, I know you're underfunded, and you know, you're like the stepchild of the Navy and all that. But, uh, but uh, anyways, so we, we get pushed out to Al Qaim, and we're living in these like rubber tents and just sucking. I mean, it, it was hot. And it was, it was August, you know, and we're out there, uh, you know, closer to the Syrian border. Um, and it just sucks. Um, but anyways, you know, I guess at, at one point, um, you know, we had a mission to kind of go right there on the Syrian border, maybe even into Syria. Again, I don't remember exactly. Well, I don't remember at all, but, um, you know, there was a foreign fighter network and we were going to go get this, uh, high level guy in it. And, um, yeah, as the story was told, told to me, there's, there was this one area that we had to go through by the border that was known to be mined. And, um, you know, uh, it, it doesn't matter on this podcast, but, you know, we could not get the helicopters, um, because we wanted to fly and not drive through a minefield. Um, anyways, we ended up, uh, being vetoed on that and we drove through a minefield. Um, we had mine clearing teams with us. They actually drove directly over the, uh, the IED that, or mine, you know, that, that we hit 
Um, and then we drove over it and, and hit it, uh, you know, and it threw, it threw a 32,000 pound vehicle, you know, like 50 feet. And wow. It said killed, killed half the people in the vehicle, you know, at, while the vehicle's in the air, it sympathetically detonated a uh, thermobaric AT4 inside the vehicle, Ooh. uh, that had just been blown up. So then, yeah, I mean, it, you know, but, um, you know, so they, uh, uh, you know, one, one of my buddy, one of my teammates, Sam, he, he survived the thing unscathed. The only person that survived it unscathed and he can kind of break it down into like nanoseconds, you know, like flash and then heat and then noise and just, you know, all of it. And anyways, he, he kind of came to and pushed, tried to climb out and pushed me out, uh, the vehicle I was in the way and like fell into the crater or a crater and, um, then, you know, everyone else kind of ran our tire tracks back to us or down to us. We we're the first vehicle uh, that beside that mine clearing team, they were in a Humvee. They were just too light to set the thing off, I guess. Or, you know, who knows? Um, but it was a, you know, it was just, a, it was a very, uh, it was a very odd thing. Like the explosion, uh, you know, on the team, the team was number one, the new guys, number six. It uh, killed all the odd numbers and left all the even numbers. Wow. Um, it killed all the people that were married or, you know, had kids, you know, with, you know, with estranged wives and, and left all the single, um, left all the single guys alone. Uh, I was just, you know, jumped around the vehicle and like it said on who it took and who it didn't, uh, which, you know, sounds really hokey, but. Uh, it just didn't make sense. You know, some people were sitting on top of it more or less and survived. And some people were on the other end of the vehicle and died. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they got, they got there and I didn't know any of this until, you know, the PA that, that flew with me, uh, he told me it, uh, the story maybe six or seven years later, um, when he was getting ready to retire and asked if I knew what had happened. Uh, no idea. But, um, he, uh, he's like, well, you know, you, uh, He's like, you know, we finally got you back. And we, we had a surgical response team that basically responded. And uh, I'm not sure if they're in their jet or they have a helicopter. They basically have a surgical suite that they respond in anywhere in the country. And these are, these are you know, top doctors in the U.S. that volunteer their time and goodwill to go over and, you know, stand strip alert for us in case something like this happens. Um, so they responded and, uh, you know, I was seizing and so they couldn't intubate me. So they you know, gave me a surgical airway and like, anti-seizure medicine they had by the time they got it there was, has to be frozen like a Moderna shot, you know, type thing. But it's, uh, it was too warm, uh, cause again, it was August in Iraq. So, um, uh, it didn't work. So I'm still seizing. So they cranked me and give me an airway, um, Stabilized me that way, life or not life play me, but uh, medevac me, you know, like uh, Marine Corps medevac me back to uh, Al Assad, not Al Assad, to Al Qaim. From Al Qaim, I'm put on like a tier or, you know, like a, 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 a uh, you know, one of our, one of our proprietary medevac birds, uh, like 160th type birds. Um, anyways, and as they're going out to the bird, I guess one of the pilots or crew chiefs, some, somebody says to the, the PA, he's like, hey, there's extra bottles under the jump seat in the back, uh, O2 bottles. 
anyway, so we, we start flying, you know, however long the flight is uh, back to uh, BIAP, uh, where the, the brain surgeon is. And, you know, I O2 pause starts going down, start flatlining. So, uh, like, uh, okay, out of air. So, it um, goes to put on a new bottle. And, um, you know, the organization uh, that, that we had just left, whose base we were at, had given him two bottles, but they were they're empty. Ooh. So, he had two bottles of, of nothing. So, uh, he's like, teach him the crew chief. Pulls him off the gun. We needed the gun in flight, but pulls him off and has him bagging me, uh, which isn't going super good. So uh, I expire once. So he gets me going again. Um, and he's like, bagging. He's like, we're just, you know, they're taking turns bagging, just for him work out. And uh, so I ended up uh, so flatlining. When you say bagging, that, that's like squeezing the, the bag to uh, yeah, pump yeah, air? Yeah, he, he got like that, that mask over your nose and mouth. And, right. You know, a little tube coming up to that, like, little clear bag of. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, you're not. It's not optimal, right? Um, anyways, I end up dying three times on the flight, and they would just keep getting me going, like starting my heart up again. But uh, you know, it's pretty bad. I still have my brain exposed to the elements and everything. You know. Anyway, so they're uh, they finally he, he's telling me this story, and uh, he's like, he just sat back on the seat, and they kind of put his head in his hand. He's like, you know. Kid's gonna not kid, but you know, this guy's gonna die. Me before, you know, we can get back. And I'm not gonna get him going again. And as he's sitting there, he looks down and sees this bottle sticking out from under the jump seat that he had forgotten about. So, uh, anyways, gets that on. Now I'm back on O2. Everything's kind of red as rain. Um, get back. Perform brain surgery, uh, and everything's good. Um, all that to be. Yeah, you know, so all, all that kind of good. And I wake up, you know, about a month later in, in Walter Reed uh, before it became Bethesda Naval, you know, before they combined. So I was in old, old Walter Reed. So I wake up, uh, wake up there and, you know, my folks were there and then everything. But, um, you know, that whole time, uh, the only memory I have is this one crazy dream. And um, I don't need to go into it on, on, on the podcast, but you know, they, they woke me up at one point in ICU and my father was there and um, they brought me out of the coma just to see where I was cognitively. And uh, you know, I, I, I was about, about a little over a decade off on where I really was. You know, I thought it was, I thought, I thought I was back in the hospital for breaking my leg on that jump we spoke about earlier. Wow. Um, but I was like, hey, you know, dad, I just had this dream. I tell him this dream. Um, and then, you know, obviously I'm still still not right in the head. So they put me back. In, now it's a medically induced coma. So they put me back in the, in the medically induced coma and uh, wake me up like two weeks later. And I'm like, hey, dad, I just had this dream. You tell him this dream. I don't remember any of it telling him this, you know, but uh, anyways, and then about two weeks later, well, I'm aw- I've been awake for two weeks, but my brain has not been creating any new memories. Like people would come and visit and uh, be like, oh man, I haven't seen you in years. Like, hey, jerk, we were just here like two days ago. Oh, I'm so sorry. You know, but um, anyways, I'm like, hey, I just had this dream. And uh, anyway, so it's like the only thing I have, but as, as Chris was telling me the story, of you know what actually happened in in the real world it, it's really really weird and like surreal how much of it uh you know how much of the dream was actually kind of like not that i've been on it but you know like a, an lsd trip of what was going on in the real in, in real life 
Wow. So it's, it's, it's about, you know, really all I have of, you know, my friends and, uh, you know, that, that whole experience um, is this kind of like LSD trippy uh, dream. But anyways, um, yeah, so that, that was kind of um, was that experience. So a lot of people did, a, you know, a ton of, a ton of hard work and a ton of good things to, uh, you know, save my life and um, a couple of the other guys. And then, you know, also, also, you know, help out the families of the guys that died. Uh, I guess the only thing in, in, uh, in retrospect, the only thing they didn't do is, you know, anytime anybody at work gets injured, as soon as it's known that, okay, they're, they're not going to die. Somebody starts taking pictures of them because, you know, <laughs> You know, it could be a broken femur, or, you know, blow up their finger or something. You know, they're 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 going pictures of them, and they're going to go on like in the medics uh, in the team room. They had like you know, there's always plexiglass on top of the tables, and it's going under there. So uh, one of my very very good friends came and saw me the day after my brain surgery, and apparently I was awake and talking. I don't remember it, but he said my head was like the size of a pumpkin and like just black. Wow. Like pure black. And I'm like, you, are you kidding me? And you didn't take a picture of this? You know, just all the bruising and everything. So, uh, again, I've got nothing. And he failed. If he's, if he ever listens to this, Joel, you failed. So, <laughs> <laughs> so then, so a lot of guys in combat and, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan have had some serious brain injuries, TBIs. Um, and, and there seems to be, a lot of focus on how to fix that. You know, how can you rewire brains and 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 sort of help with some of the damage that's done, the physical damage that's done. Uh, so, did you do any special sort of therapy or anything like that to to help you out? Well, uh, number one, I got very 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 lucky. Um, you know, I, I had the seizures, but you know, cognitively, I mean, I and maybe it's just. I'm used to it now. You know, I have some memory issues. I have some manual dexterity issues on the one hand, but, uh, you know, they're, they're pretty, pretty minor, I guess, um, in the grand scheme of things. Um, you know, I, I saw one of my, one of my friends, you know, at work, I didn't see it happen, but I, I witnessed, you know, him in the aftermath. He, a helicopter came in and blew deadfall out of a tree down in, uh, um, the jungle. I think they were down in, uh, Belize. And a piece of dead ball came out and smacked him in the forehead and Ooh. he like retrograded back to sixth grade. Wow. You know, you know, so in, in the big scheme of things, I'm, I'm very, very fortunate. Um, as far as like therapies and stuff, I mean, it, it's like a, a constant like obsession because I'm convinced and, and I don't want to jinx myself, but I'm, I know I'm more, I'm more, uh, uh, susceptible to, you know, early on to onset dementia and Alzheimer's because of the concussion and because of the head trauma. And, you know, I, I want to, you know, I eat right and try not to drink as much as I should, you know, or drink and stuff. And I shouldn't, but, uh, you know, exercise, eat right, try and get good sleep. Um, you know, all, all those things. And, you know, almost like, you know, I heard Joe Rogan the other day. He's like, you know, I'll, I'll try anything that somebody says is you know good for me. You know, until somebody can prove that it isn't, I'm just going to keep putting stuff in my body, you know, to help me live longer type thing. You know, so the same, same thing cognitively, you know, I, I know that I'm at a higher rate to, to run into those things early. So I'm constantly trying to find the next thing to, uh, 
to you know kick that can to the right a little bit. Right. Have you ever um have you ever tried any breath work like breathing exercises? Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, to the National and Center, uh, National Center, National Intrepid Center of Excellence that's, up uh, at Bethesda, Maryland, they have this Nico. Uh, Nico, yeah, 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 yeah. So I went through their program, and, and they have a lot of great techniques. And you know, I mean, the people there, and the, the docs, and the nurses, and the caseworkers, and everybody. I mean, I, I can't talk enough uh, good things about them. I mean, they they were amazing. Um, you know, and they call it the Nico bubble because you're just they just protect you and and help you. And I mean, they're, they're some of the most amazing people I've met in my life. Um, you know, and they gave, they gave us a lot of techniques to, you know, to use. And I, I still, I still do use those techniques. Uh, you know, but I, you know, that for me, that was in, uh, was, you know, seven years ago, eight years ago. So, you know, I'm, there, I'm, there is new stuff out and I'm, I'm constantly looking for that, that new thing. Uh, of course, I'm too cheap to actually spend money on it. So whatever the VA will give me, in. yeah, and they'll donate to me. I'll I'll, I'll try it. <laughs> yeah, I've I've been like practicing breath work for like the last I don't know six months or so. Um, but I first learned about this guy named Wim Hof. He's a a Dutch guy, and um, he has like all these crazy weird like sort of world records of, of things that he can do with his body that are just kind of unique. Like he, he, uh, he climbed Everest in shorts on video. He'd done a whole bunch of like crazy shit like that, like swim under ice for X number of meters, like on ice, uh, like break through the ice and swim under it and break out. Um, but a, a lot of the stuff he does, uh, it's attributed to his his breathing exercises and his cold water therapy, and um, it's really fascinating stuff. But the, the the whole breath thing and breathing and, and meditation, and all that that stuff that's been done, you know, in India and Tibet for thousands of years, and then in the last you know thirty five forty years, Western scientists have sort of been um, going over there or, or having monks come over here and, and study people and and Wim's actually a pretty interesting guy because he uh he's one of these these folks in, in that arena who uh has gone into several universities and and been studied and um you know he he did they did one study where he was in this submerged in this ice tank i i forget for how long 30 minutes or an hour maybe and um his core body temperature didn't drop at all and and he was doing that through his his breathing exercises that that he practices normally. So yeah, it it, it might be something to try out. You know, uh, there are a couple of apps I could I could probably give you the name of one of the apps that I use. It's it's pretty remarkable. So I kind of like start my my day off with uh, a breath exercise that's meant to sort of wake you up and energize you, and then throughout the day you do a couple, and at night you do one that kind of help you sleep and relax you. So it's it's pretty fascinating stuff. I I don't know you know, uh, how much of a benefit that would have for, you know, brain injuries and things like that. But it's definitely worth looking into, I would think. Yeah, no, I'd definitely uh, be open to it. Um, yeah, send it my way. All right, so when you um, when you were doing that job up in D.C., was that the, the final bit of your career in the Army? Uh, no. Um, so... 
I came back from there then. Uh, I was actually at a, at a funeral. I believe it was Josh Wheeler's funeral. Um, and the unit, uh, it was. And the, the unit sergeant major at the time, he was like, hey, I need, I need you to come back and run this uh, C4I. So command control, uh, communications, computers and intelligence, uh, research and development shop. And um, so I ended up finish up finishing up my my time there at, at work doing that. Uh, you know, we kind of what we got out of that was um, a uh, a mobile phone application called ATAC, and it's pretty much you know to be honest, uh, the two my two predecessors are the ones that deserve all the credit for it and. You know they uh, they got it going and and everything and then I kind of just rested on their laurels and and um, kind of forced it into the guy's hands just reform factored and and did some stuff with uh, with how it was dis- how it was distributed across the well, bottom line is I took what it was and said we're going to be uh, you know operating system agnostic device agnostic and uh, transportation layer agnostic. Because uh, that was kind of the hang up there, why people weren't using it. They, um, it was basically a geospatial back. Imagine using your phone, right? So you have your iPhone. And hopefully, uh, you know, nobody uses Android. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I'm a big, big Apple guy. But uh, you know, so it, regardless of what what phone you have, you know, you have all this technology, and you'd go overseas, and you're back to like the Stone Age, like push to talk radios. Like even even in our in our talk or tactical operations center, you know you can basically you have like you know drone footage and you know uh, map data and you know source information and the NSA's information. I mean you, you just have all this information you know at your fingertips, and then you literally step out a door and you're back to where did they go? You know always on your right, no your other right, you know push to talk like i mean and that was that just baffled me and in like 2005 we drew this like cartoon on or not cartoon but you know like this like you know it was like a cartoon diagram of what we wished the world on the battlefield looked like we drew it on this whiteboard and then you know uh, basically a decade later i was i was able to create it um like i said you know using using what the guys before me had done um but basically, guys are were allowed or were, were being able to run around on the battlefield with cell phones and and do things, you know, which is it's crazy, uh, you know, in a good way. But anyways, that's that's where I finished up my my military career. But you know, the uh, the time up in D.C. was kind of when um, Iraq was drawing down. Um, ISIS was spinning up, uh, the Benghazi, you know, the killing of Ambassador Stevens happened. Um, you know, so we're trying to bring the Benghazi attack network to justice, uh, just all that stuff. And, you know, for me, the big takeaway on all that was, is, you know, how do, how do I, a number of different things. Uh, one being is I, I've got to adjust my uniform, not that we wore many uniforms, you know, at our organization, but, you know, my my uniform in Washington D.C. was like an Italian skinny suit with uh, you know pointy-toed shoes, and you know, <laughs> I, mean, I mean seriously, it was like, you know, it was a, it, I had to wear a different uniform, which is not something I would normally wear, but you know that helped me get in the door, or at least you know, uh, 
helped me at least helped somebody at least it was my bona fides right that was that was um at least i looked the part i wasn't i wasn't a knuckle dragger or you know anything i wasn't perceived to be one uh just by the way i dressed and then um you know it was how can i convince somebody how can i how can i quickly assess what their equities are uh in a region or in you know an area Um, and then how can I get them to yes, to let me can, or when I say me, you know, the organization I'm representing, how can I get them to yes, uh, to allow us to conduct the thing we have to do while still protecting their equities. And that was, uh, again, this huge, you know, super late in my career, but this huge learning curve of, um, of how to do that. And, you know, some people could do it well and, and some people couldn't. And, you know, I, I screwed up a few times before I learned, you know, how to do it right. But um, that was, that was a huge three years of, uh, of learning for me. Awesome. So, you know, I, I appreciate you, uh, you know, telling your story and, and being honest about some of the things you, that you've gone through. I know that's not easy for a lot of people, um, to, to sort of speak that openly. Uh, but one, one of the things I will say about that is guys who are going through similar situations, um, you know, they, they hear someone like yourself served where you served, talk about it. And, you know, it, it makes it easier for them to go through that and they have someone to relate to. So I appreciate you, uh, you know, being honest and open about that. And, um, you know, I want to thank you for coming on here. I know we've been trying to do this for a while and, and we figured out a time that works and um, it was great talking to you. So uh, if, if anyone listening wants to sort of keep up with you or, or any of the uh, the businesses you're running, uh, is there a place they can do that, like online? or? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess I guess lastly, I'll plug, you know, Archon Ready Group. I know, um, you know, uh, Billy was on and, and probably went into in depth on, on, you know, our company there. Uh, you know, with that, with that effort, we've recently just really started expanding with Airsoft and doing CQB. I mean, ammo is ridiculously priced, right? And mm, right, you know, it's nobody's right. fault. It just is what it is. But, um, you know, you can check us out, uh, at Archon. That's A-R-C-H-O-N, Ready Group. Uh, you know, we're running some Airsoft courses, which are, are really catching on pretty quickly uh, out here in Vegas. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, the Grizz Global Solutions, uh, you know, we're, we're always looking for, um, you know, anybody, if, if anybody's listening and knows anybody that, you know, needs personal security, um, you know, we're, we're always in the business of taking on new clients, uh, you know, for that. And, you know, it, it's a lot of uh, former, former unit guys and uh, SF and Ranger types and a couple, uh, couple of SWAT guys. Um, and then, you know, if you're, if you're in Park City, Utah, definitely check out, uh, Chop Shop Park City. It's, uh, located in Kimball Junction in between the Best Buy and Hearth and Hill. And, um, you know, I can, can throw my name in there. I don't know what it'll, uh, what it'll get you because, uh, John doesn't like giving stuff out for free, but, um, <laughs> which is good. That's why we, we stay profitable, but, um, definitely go in and check it out. There's, uh, some, some great meats in there. And John, thanks a lot for having me on. Yeah, no worries at all, man. I'm always happy to to, to sit down and have these conversations. Um, so again, thank you for doing this, and I want to thank you for your service as well. All right, thanks a lot. <laughs>